You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We don't want stores on every corner in every city. You know, we want to keep it as special an experience as it was originally on 74th Street. We want to be part of the communities and the neighborhoods that we open in, and we want to create great places for people to work and to visit. So finding a partner who supported that, I think, was really a miracle. Exciting career changes could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today. You can get the expertise you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. So I suspect, just guessing, that some of you may be listening to this December episode as you whip up some holiday treats in your kitchen or make your way to the grocery store to pick out the perfect ingredients because this is the season for baking amazing sweet treats for and with the people that we love. And on that note, our guests today, they need almost no introduction. Levain Cookies... I'm just going to make you all salivate with those two words. Levain cookies are some of the most sought after treats in the country today. And if you haven't stood in a line around the block to get them fresh out of the oven in New York City, chances are pretty good you've had them shipped to your door or you've snagged them in the grocery store. Founders Pam Weeks and Connie McDonald started Levain Bakery 27 years ago. I cannot believe that. I feel like I've been eating them my whole life. And they are here today to tell us about their journey, their product, and what it looks like to run a successful bakery for more than a quarter century. Connie, Pam, welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Jean. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, thanks, Jean, so much. And thanks for the very nice introduction. <laughs> of course, of course. Thank you for some really delicious cookies. So I want to start where it all began. And Connie, let me start with you. Where did Levain come from? How did you guys get your start? You know, it's a great question, Jean. And a lot of people are always asking us that. You know, Pam and I have been like best friends for a very long time. And we started training for triathlons. We met swimming and we were both doing completely different things. Pam more happily and more successfully than I. And I was working in finance, finally left my job, which was probably the best thing I ever did and went to cooking school thinking maybe I'd be a caterer and discovered bread baking there. And to make a long story short, I was working in some restaurants baking bread and had heard that it wasn't a very successful rendition of this last restaurant where I was. The bread was doing well, and I heard that I was going to be the next person to be let go. So we kind of nipped that in the bud, and I approached Pam and said, you know, you want to try it, and maybe I'll see if I can go off their payroll. It was a huge kitchen. We can start the bakery, you know, baking wholesale bread there. And we got some accounts and started delivering wholesale bread around the city. And like six months later, we found our store on West 74th Street, and we opened there. How did you get from bread, Pam, to cookies? And when your best friend said to you, hey, come open a bakery with me, what made you take that leap? 
<laughs> well, I have always loved baking. I grew up baking everything. You know, my mom made all our bread. We never had any packaged cookies or cakes. She made them all, and I started baking really early on. So when Connie and I had been training for the Ironman triathlon, we had a lot of time to talk about what we wanted to do, and we discovered that we both wanted to have our own businesses. A bakery was not one of them, but when Connie came to me and said, what do you think about a bakery? I thought, why not? You know, it'll be a lot of fun. I won't have to worry about eating everything I bake. <laughs> we'll be able to share that. So that's sort of how we got started. And the cookies we were making for ourselves when we were training for the triathlons that we did. So we had always made them. And when we found our first retail space, it was a slow start. And one day, I think Connie was a little bored and thought, oh, let me make a batch of cookies and see if people will buy them. And that's at that time, a batch was like 12 cookies. So she made them and they sold and people came back asking for them. Well, I'm not surprised that people came back asking for them, but just in your introduction, I feel like I have a much greater understanding of these cookies. So for our listeners who have never experienced a Levain cookie, they are huge. They're a meal in a cookie. And the fact that you were triathletes and you needed to eat a lot, that explains the world to me because mostly I'll buy them, I'll cut it into, you know, fourths and I'll eat it over the course of a week. Let's just give people some context. I mean, how much does a Levain cookie weigh? Each cookie weighs six ounces. So it's almost a half a pound. And we've always thought that they are really good to share. Even when we were doing races, we most often shared them. And I personally try to limit myself to half a day. So I give you a lot of credit for a quarter over a week. <laughs> <laughs> They're the size of a good hamburger. I mean, in other words, if you're going to put this into context, right, you go into a restaurant, you get a hamburger, a hamburger is six ounces. That's how big these cookies are. So you went from basically quietly adding these cookies to your menu to having 11 bakeries across New York and Washington, D.C. and Boston and big plans to expand. How did you get from let's try cookies to cookies being the center of the plate attraction, Pam? <laughs> well, as Connie said, we started out as wholesale bread and then we found our retail space and we made a variety of breads that we really liked. But once we started making the cookies, people were really excited about them. And we were just happy to have people coming in and buying anything. So we sort of went with that. You know, it wasn't part of our original plan, but we knew we wanted to be successful with what we were doing with our bakery. And we were just really happy that people were buying the cookies. So that's sort of how we got into the cookies. How do you get, Connie, from one bakery to more than one bakery? to being in, I was so excited to see that you actually are in my grocery store at this point. How does that happen? Oh, initially very slowly. <laughs> and over the course of the past couple of years, that obviously that's accelerated quite a lot. But back in the very beginning years of the bakery, we did just out of necessity, we expanded, whether it was for trying to figure out like what our customer does in the summer, 
or, you know, another location was, you know, we were starting to really grow. We're bursting out of our seams and we needed just more space. So those were kind of moves out of necessity rather than like strategic growth kind of moves. But more recently, we have actually been intentionally, you know, targeting cities and growing in places that we feel as though we would be a great fit. I think that's an interesting distinction. You grow and grow and grow because you gain more business in your original location and you're continuing to simply do more of what you started to do. But at some point, you do have to get intentional about it. What did that shift mean in terms of your business? Did it mean taking on advisors, raising capital? When did you realize you were there? And then how did you go about it, Pam? Well, so I was going to say in the beginning, you know, it was just Connie and I, we had no money. We had no investors. We were very lean. And the growth that Connie is talking about, you know, the driven by necessity was also sort of limited by our ability to get financing. You know, in the beginning, no one wanted to give us any money. You know, we went into a local bank for a small business loan and they basically kind of laughed at us. So we have a lot of kind of funny, challenging, interesting money and finance stories early on. But once... Well, what did you do when they laughed at you? Tell me those stories. Well, (laughs) we kept trying for sure. We ended up taking a small loan from an angel investor who really believed in us and we paid her back fairly quickly with interest. And then at one point when we were building one of our stores, we needed cash really quickly. And we actually, I'm not sure we knew what we were doing, but we ended up borrowing money from essentially loan sharks at an absolutely exorbitant interest rate. I mean, we had no idea that this actually happened, but we needed we needed money to pay contractors and no banks we're going to give it to us. We did end up getting a small business loan finally, and that really helped. <laughs> but it was it was funny. We had were they you know, scary loan sharks? They were at the end. <laughs> we wanted to just pay them back as quickly as possible and be done. It was a, a learning experience. And so, as I said, you've got eleven bakeries at this point. You're in retail stores. You've got aims to double your bakeries by 2025. What does your structure look like and how have you managed this growth? I mean, I think a lot of people who have small businesses find themselves asking, you know, are we doing this too quickly? Are we moving too slowly? How have you paced it out, Connie? Well, you know, our business really started to change like around 20. It was constantly growing, but, you know, we saw a huge kind of growth spurt with sales and things like around 2015 and things. And we had several people contacting us wanting to either invest or something along those lines. And thankfully, Pam and I were always aligned with our vision for the bakery and appreciated so much what we had built and didn't want to ruin it. So we graciously declined a lot of these offers because we just felt like they weren't right. But eventually, we were just getting too busy for us to handle. We didn't have a lot of management structure, and we knew like something had to change. And we had been contacted by a, a private equity company, and we finally met them 
And it was kind of like love at first sight, if you will. It was just like, it was like kind of a dream come true. You're like, wow, this is finally, we've met the right people. You know, they've shared our vision for the bakery. They love the brand. And we felt like we were taking on investors that were going to care for the bakery and the brand as much as we do. How has that gone? I know some people hear the words private equity and they get nervous. You know, they think these people are going to want to tell me what to do. They're going to want to take control. They're going to want to see me grow faster than I am comfortable growing because they're looking to exit with money. What made you feel comfortable with these folks and how has it gone? Like I said, they kind of shared this. They appreciated the brand as much as we do. And so we felt very comfortable in that they didn't want to kind of blow it up and ruin it, which is, you know, what everyone's worst nightmare is. And that's, you know, that is what happens. And so to answer your question, it has gone incredibly well. We've built, as you said, we're up to 11 stores now. We have a very strong management team, which has been great in helping us run this business, which has become quite, you know, it's a real business now. Not that it wasn't before, but it's pretty much gone the way that we had hoped it would go. Well, these people were very different than so many of the people we had met in the past. And they asked us like what our visions were, what our dreams were. And they said that they were aligned with those and they have been, and they've just supported us and our team. And one of the things that we really struggled with when it was just Connie and I, and we were working all of the time, and because literally we were working all of the time, is we were really not able to create a good management structure as much as we tried to. And so they were able to help us recruit and hire an amazing CEO and start building out the amazing team that we have today, which is what has made all the growth possible. But even with all of the growth, it's still been very controlled and within our vision. Like we don't want stores on every corner in every city. You know, we want to keep it as special an experience as it was originally on 74th Street. We want to be part of the communities and the neighborhoods that we open in, and we want to create great places for people to work and to visit. So finding a partner who supported that, I think, was really a miracle, and we've been very lucky. (laughs) We've just come through Black Friday and Cyber Monday that were not like any Black Friday and Cyber Monday that I've seen before, and that Cyber Monday really trounced Black Friday. I mean, the expectations for Black Friday were were there, and people did go out to the stores, but Cyber Monday just blew expectations out of the water. And I think that's a part, a result of the pandemic and how we changed during the pandemic. And I know Levain changed during the pandemic. How did you navigate and what was the impact on your business? It was a really challenging time, but because we had this amazing team in place, we were able to really pivot and following all the protocols that we'd been given for how to operate. We had a team of people who really wanted to keep working and keep coming in every day. And our neighborhoods were so appreciative. But at the same time, e-com just blew up because all the people who had left the city and were home were craving, I think, something familiar and comforting. So for us, that was a real pivotal point for our e-com business. Yeah, not just pivotal, but huge, a 200% increase in e-commerce demand that I read and that e-commerce is responsible for increasing your sales 12x. I mean, so e-commerce has really been a huge part of your business. 
You talked about wanting to be a store, not on every corner, but on corners where it fits into the neighborhood, where you become a part of things. How do you do that through e-commerce and maintain your feel and your values? Mm, that's a good question. <laughs> that's 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 a challenge, right? It's just like because keypads aren't warm and fuzzy and you can't, you know, they don't smile at you and say hello to you when you walk in a door and things. But I think that the care with which we bring our product you know, to our e-commerce customer is like, it's really obvious that someone who packed this for you, baked this for you, made it for you, really cares. You know, I'm sorry, but it's not like when you get the Amazon package that there's a toothbrush in like a 12 by 12 box, you know, and you, like you think that whoever did this really doesn't care that much. But I think that it does come through with what people receive and you know, no one's perfect and sometimes mistakes are made, but we like to think that our like customer service people, you know, are really amazing and caring and trying to, you know, bring that whole experience as best they can, you know, to those customers who can't come to the stores. Also, I think in case people don't know, all of our e-com orders are baked and packed to order. We don't have a warehouse full of cookies that are ready to go. We get your order and it's scheduled for a date and then it's baked that day and packed that day. So the cookies are incredibly fresh. I mean, they're not like getting a warm cookie out of the oven as you walk into a bakery, of course, but they're as fresh as they can be coming through the mail. And so I think that that sort of conveys how much we care. You know, it's all these little things. Yeah, no, and and I can attest that they they hold up quite well. We moved to Philadelphia over the pandemic and have had our share of cookies from your bakery. I want to talk about your lives. I want to talk about your friendship and how you've been able to maintain it through what must have been a good number of ups and downs through the years. But before we do that, let me remind everyone that whether you are up with the sun like our bakers here or burning the midnight oil, we all know how hard you work to excel in your careers and that it takes grit and determination and skill to get where you want to go. But what if things change? Maybe you want to open your first business. Maybe you want to go for a big promotion. Maybe you want to move for your dream job. How does all of that affect your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today with an integrated approach to wealth management that looks at your life from a 360 degree perspective. You'll get the expertise that you need to build momentum with your finances and your career. I am talking with Pam Weeks and Connie McDonald, co-founders of the Levane Bakery. So I've got to ask, I have to imagine that starting a business with your closest friend is a dream for many people. And I also have to imagine that for many people, it doesn't end well. How do you guys stay friends? (laughs) We've talked about this a lot because we sometimes say that our biggest success is actually that we're still friends 27 years later. But I think part of the reason we've been able to remain friends and be so successful is that we have very, very aligned, similar values, but we're very different people. We have very different personalities and we bring like complete opposite things to the situation and the business and we're able to work well together. And I don't think that we've ever 
honestly disagreed on a big decision. You know, we instantly have the same vision, right? Yeah, that's true. So, Connie, tell me about Pam. How is she different from you? (laughs) Well, I don't think we have enough time, Jean. (laughs) Come on, just lay it all out there. Well, like Pam said, first, the sim- like we are like the values that we have are and so kind of like sense of taste and things are very the same. But I think that, you know, a big part of the success of the bakery, too, is Pam kind of ran the business part of it and did so amazingly well, you know, so impressive and definitely something that is not my forte at all. But I think that, you know, we worked really well together in a partnership and, you know, failing either our friendship or our business was never an option, you know, and there weren't even any close calls, you know, which is pretty amazing. And Pam, so you handled the business and Connie handled the recipe development and the food? No, we did the recipe development and the food together, but Connie's a little more outgoing than I am. So I would say that she's sort of been more the bigger face of the bakery, I guess. And I'm a lot more detail. Yeah, detail oriented, but not it's not that Connie's not detail oriented either, but you know, we just sort of divided and conquered what felt like the most natural way. But I mean, we've always done all the recipe development together. I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do. So I was not going to let that go. So tell me about perfecting a recipe. I mean, I actually went to cooking school as well. When I was in between jobs in my 20s, I thought maybe I didn't want to be a financial writer. Maybe I wanted to be a food writer. And so I enrolled in a six-month cooking school. And I think recipe development is so challenging. There's no wiggle room for, you got to get it right. How do you guys go about it? And how did you develop these cookies? Like, what is it that makes them such great cookies? We've always tried to keep things really simple. And we've always tried to make things that we really like. And, you know, things that we thought were not readily available anywhere else nearby us. So that's sort of how we start thinking about it. We do a lot of iterations of things, like even for the chocolate chip walnut cookies, say, you know, we started making that for ourselves before the bakery. And then when we started making it at the bakery, we continued for about a year to tweak it until we were really happy with it. And these days we do a lot of work at home and we start with a small, you know, countertop size mixer and we'll make things until we think we're happy with them. And then we'll take them to the bakery and make them in a bigger quantity. And there are always more adjustments to make. It's a lot of trial and error. Luckily, we have a lot of people who like to eat the the errors. (laughs) Do you have different favorite cookies? I think think they change. (laughs) You know, it's like you think, for me, the I don't know, the chocolate chip walnut or the dark chocolate chocolate chip. But right now we have a dark chocolate peppermint cookie that in stores and on e-com for the holidays, which is awesome. So it kind of, it's always changing. I had a boyfriend in high school who worked at Baskin Robbins, 31 Flavors, and he could just, after like the first six months, he just could never eat that stuff again. But I'm sensing that that's not true for you. (laughs) Unfortunately not. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And we both, I would say, you know, we have very different tastes. Like I 
have to have dessert pretty much after every meal, even breakfast if, if I can. Whereas Connie's a little more savory with savory, her taste, yep. I think. But we both really love a cookie and ice cream. There's, mm, you know. That's my favorite. For those other women out there who do have sights on opening a bakery or going into the food world in some way, what would you say to them? Mm. As advice? Yeah. What um, would your advice be? I mean, if I had to list a career that I was going to do now, if I had to completely change it up, opening a bakery would 100% be on my list. I have a sourdough starter that is five years older than the pandemic, right? I like to bake. And I would maybe give that a go. So what would your advice be to somebody like me? Well, I would say that's great. You know, so excited for you. And I would definitely say, yes, do it, you know, but like when Pam and I started 74th street, that was our dream that like, that was it. The dream wasn't 11 stores or it was just starting something that we just loved, you know? And it's like, I think that when you start something and begin something or a business and you have to really love it in order to be able to make it work because it's like, it was never, oh, I don't want to go. It was always like so much fun. And I'm not saying that there weren't some hard times, but it was always so gratifying. And to when we made so many friends. And so I would say, you know, make sure you love it and enjoy it. And that like, that's the goal. And if more comes from that, great. But like we said, we enjoyed every minute of those like early days on 74th Street. Now that the financial success really has come, how has that changed your life? How has it changed what you are thinking about for your futures? It's kind of amazing. Like I never thought I would be in a position. I mean, for so long, we were just more focused on the day to day and we weren't really thinking about our future. We just wanted to sort of get through the day to day. And now that we've got a little more time and a little more money, we are able to focus on a future. What does it look like? I think the amazing things like having money more than I ever thought I would. Personally, it doesn't make me happy. But what makes me happy is what I've been able to do with it as far as like helping my family, donating to I'm a I love animals and being able to like make huge donations to, you know, the World Wildlife Fund or being able to have the freedom to make a, an impact like that means everything to me. Yeah, I don't think that we've changed our spending habits at all. I mean, I, neither one of us <laughs> spends really a lot of money. I think we live pretty simple lives. The only thing I probably really spend money on, you know, is food, I guess. <laughs> But having that stability is really nice. But also oh. having been able, like as I say, making people happy, like it, like with the bakery has been such a gratifying thing and still is. I mean, it's such an amazing, we're so lucky to be able to do that, you know, to, to see people's lives touched by what we do and have done. Connie, you said, oh, what was that oh about? Well, I do have to say that it is kind of a huge thing because, I mean, when I was in my 20s in New York, it was tough, right? Yeah, it was like, it was tough. Know, I mean, yeah, we have stories, but you know, to not have to worry about money is a true gift. You know, it's like 
unbelievable. And like Pam was saying, you know, we have an amazing financial advisor that I trust more than anyone. And it's really such an incredible experience to have that. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the stability <laughs> is no. I mean, having struggled oh, in in New York on eleven thousand dollars a year, like I, yeah. I get this right. And never it's, standing it, a chemical bank to to cash your paycheck. On yes, so, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So that's that's a real gift. But I, th- I think we should also say, you know, for the first. 20 years, we did not take any money out of the business at all. We put everything back into it. And we always had medical insurance for our team before that was a thing. And with the help of this financial advisor who we still work with today, we were able to start a profit sharing plan. You know, in the beginning, it didn't mean much, but, you know, in the end, it did. So we've always tried to kind of focus on the bigger picture, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think it's amazing. I'm very happy for you and for all of this success. And again, very happy to see the cookies in my grocery store. Please open on the street corner here in Philadelphia. We would be so happy to have you. Where can our listeners find out more about you? The best place would be our website, levenbakery.com. Okay. Pam, Connie, thank you so much for doing this today. Happy holidays to both of you. Oh, thank you, Jane. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Jane. You're really nice. Before we dive into our mailbag, just a reminder, Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that helps members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. Chelsea Zhu is joining me today for our mailbag. Chelsea is our associate producer. For those of you who have not met her yet, she is stepping in for Catherine today because Catherine is under the weather and we are not going to allow her to talk. At least we're not going to allow her to talk on mic. Chelsea, I know you are joining us from your home in Austin, but that you did spend some time on the East Coast. Have you ever had a Levain cookie? Levain cookie. I'm learning now that I butchered the pronunciation. I've been saying Levain my whole life. I'm going to just stick with it. No, I'm going to try to get it right and say Levain. Yeah. Well, I also didn't know that that's how it was pronounced. But no, I've never had one. And this conversation just made me be very envious of anyone who has had one because I'm also like a huge sweets person. And I totally related to what Pamela said about having a dessert after every meal, even breakfast. Because that's So if you, I was actually going to ask her about that. If you have dessert after breakfast, what do you have? I mean, I think my breakfasts tend to be sweet in and of themselves, right? If I'm going to have a bagel, I'm going to have a bagel with butter and jelly, and it's going to be good jelly, right? Or if I'm going to have cereal, it's probably going to be Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I love Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but I think the way it works for me, at least, is if the breakfast itself is sweet, then that's okay. But if the breakfast is savory, then I have to have something else that's sweet to end the meal. So that could be just like a coffee that's kind of sweet or like a piece of fruit. But yeah, I just need the last thing on my tongue to be sweet for some reason. And are you a chocolate after sushi person? Because I I definitely like after sushi, I need chocolate. Is that? I've never heard of that. Is that like a thing? It's a thing in my family. <laughs> you know why um, I, I think it's a thing? Because there's a restaurant in New York, at least there was for many years, called Hatsuhana that was one of the early good sushi places. And 
before these days where hand sanitizer was everywhere, they didn't keep a bowl of mints by the door. They kept a big bowl of M&Ms by the door and with a little spoon. So you could use the spoon to put them in your hand, which you were supposed to do. But I think it's from there that I have always associated chocolate with sushi. Yeah, I personally have never heard of that, but it sounds good to me. Definitely if I have <laughs> if I have sushi or anything like that, I will eat something sweet and I love chocolate. So, next time I'll have to try it. M&Ms after sushi. Let's take some questions. Yeah. So, we have two questions today and they both come from members of our private Her Money Facebook group. So, our first listener writes, "Hello wise ladies of Her Money, I'm curious how I should think about family vacations once kids start moving out of the house. My husband and I have three kids, ages 17, 20, and 22. We've made it a priority to invest in week-long family vacations each year since our youngest was five, and these are the highlights of our year together. Not all of them have been extravagant, but we do have a mindset of it's vacation, so we will spend whatever it takes to experience all the fun and interesting things at our destination. These vacations have offered the chance to spend quality time together and bond, whereas our regular life offers fractured schedules and various time priorities for all of us. So now our oldest has graduated from college, landed a well-paying job, and moved out on his own with his girlfriend, who we like. I'm struggling with how to plan our vacations, as how or if we include our oldest will set a precedent for our other children as they come to the same stage in life. And I acknowledge that as they grow older, they may not wish to vacation with us, should we continue to take all the kids on vacation and foot the entire bill? What about any girlfriends or boyfriends? I'm so curious about best practices for how to navigate this particular stage of life. Thank you. I have so been in this very same spot. And I think what I would like to do is just tell you what I have done, what my husband and I have done, which is to, yeah, try to plan a family vacation at least once a year that everyone will go on. And we have footed the bill. And in part, we've footed the bill because at my age, I like to travel in a pretty particular way, not always extravagant, but definitely nice. And I know that my children can't afford that. And I don't feel that it is necessarily fair to impose my travel tastes on them. If they were choosing to spend their money to go on a particular type of vacation, it may be very, very different than the type of vacation that I want to take and that I'm inviting them along to. What we've done as far as significant others is we've got a move-in policy. So if you're living together, then your significant other gets invited. If you're not living together, generally they don't get invited. But as it's getting more and more serious, you know, of course, we are going to think about bringing them along. And one of the nice things that has happened is that as my kids have earned more money, they've picked up what they felt like they could afford. So they grab the check at dinner or they grab the check for an excursion or they volunteer to pick up the cost of a flight or two. I don't know if there's a policy to set here. I don't know if there is, is a best practice 
to set here. I mean, for the record, I've done family vacations where I've invited my parents and paid for my parents to come because those were the type of vacations that I wanted to take. It's kind of like in my head. And again, if any of you out there are listening to me and you disagree with me, please write me a letter and tell me why and how you do it in your family because I'm fascinated by this topic. But I kind of feel like it's my party and I'm inviting people to my party. And when you invite people to your party, you should pay. And so that's how it works in our family. And maybe that'll work for you as well. How's it worked in yours, Chelsea? I'm not expecting that you're paying for vacations for your extended family at this point at age 23, but if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, I feel like for us, there's a lot of unspoken stuff with like Chinese American culture. Like the way that Chinese culture kind of works is that you have to put on a show of fighting for the bill with lots of different things, even if it's like understood by everybody that that's not actually what's going to happen. So, you know, now that I have my own paycheck and everything, my parents don't expect that I will pay for everything on a vacation, but it feels good for them if I like put up a show of like, oh, I'm going to get dinner. And my older sister, she also does things like that. I remember one time we were all like out at a family dinner and she kind of like said that she was going to the bathroom and then she like paid the bill behind everybody's back. So how did that go over? Was that like okay with your parents? And were they happy about that? Or were they like, oh, you shouldn't have done that? So it's like the appearance is the last thing, like being kind of mad. But the reality is like, they're like, oh, this is good because she's like showing respect and that she cares about like the value of our money and is paying us back for raising her. So yeah, I think it's a it's a weird push and pull thing with our family, but we all definitely try to chip in or at least offer because I think the offering is important. I think so too. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I love when we get questions like this about money and kind of family relationships because I think everybody does things differently and it's really interesting to hear what other people do. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's do one more. Yeah, so our next question, our listener writes, Hello, I am in search of prenup advice. My fiancé and I are completely on the same page financially. However, he's an entrepreneur with his own business. The plan is for him to sell the company down the road, and both of us do fire. Okay, let me stop you there, Chelsea, before you explain the rest of the question, because we haven't talked about fire in a while on this show. So for anybody's like, what does it mean to do fire? Fire stands for financial independence, retire early. And it's a way of saving and spending where you bank a huge portion of your income for the future with the idea that you're going to be able to stop working or at least stop working in the job that you don't like much, much earlier. So that's what FIRE is. Okay, continue. We plan on having kids in the next three years. And at that point, I will stop working outside of the home. What we want from a prenup is a way to financially honor the work and time I would put into parenting while not earning my own income. We also want to protect the business he's worked incredibly hard on. I'm not sure how to hash out the money-to-time ratio. For example, if we want to divorce after three years of me not working with one child, I would receive a different financial amount than if we divorce after 20 years of me not working with three kids. I know we each need our own attorney. We've also been together three and a half years and are in no rush to get married, so this isn't urgent. We have plenty of time to make the right prenup for ourselves. 
I'm trying to get a sense of how we would outline what I stated above. Perhaps there are formulas available that I don't know about. Thanks in advance for your guidance and support. Thank you for such an interesting question. So you know that I am, I'm a believer in prenups and I'm, I'm specifically a believer in prenups. If you come into a relationship where there is a playing field that's not level or where there are pre-existing assets from a different relationship or kids from another relationship or a business that you want to protect. What's unclear to me, although it's a little clear, you write that he's an entrepreneur with his own business. My underlying question is going to be, how much does your support allow him to conduct his business? And what is the value of that in addition to the value that you will provide staying home with the kids? I agree with you. I think that you should have some form of compensation set out based upon you staying home with the kids. But I also wonder if that should be tied to the fortune of his business. So for example, if you decided that you were going to look at your earning capability in the year before you took a break to stay home with the kids in the year before you were working from home and you were earning, and this is just throwing numbers out there, you were earning $50,000 in that year. If you said, all right, for all of those years, I'm going to take that salary, I'm going to back out what might have been some cost of living expenses to figure out how much I would have been able to save and invest, gross it up for the amount that you expect that your money would have grown over those years, maybe that would be a fair amount to receive. But the other way of looking at it is thinking about his business and the growth of his business and the amount that you being home provides him in terms of the freedom and flexibility to go and try to grow this business whole hog. And it's quite possible that the business will grow faster than your salary would have grown or that you would have assumed that your salary would grow. And so I think where I land is somewhere in the middle. I think you should benefit from the growth of his business. I also think there should be some sort of a fail-safe in case his business doesn't grow for you to have a certain amount of money that is yours should you decide to divorce down the road. And maybe the way to handle it is by making steady contributions, or one way to handle it is by making steady contributions to a spousal IRA, which is an individual retirement account in your name where you can make a full contribution because you have a spouse who is in the workforce. Chances are because even with the increased amount of IRA contribution limits going into 2023 at $6,500 plus another thousand in catch-up contributions, that in and of itself may not be sufficient, but maybe it's a place to start. My guess is that a good family planning attorney has heard all of these scenarios before. And so 
make sure you get yourself a good attorney. Make sure you not only get a family planning attorney who's dealt with prenups, but make sure that you get one who has dealt with prenups and small businesses. And thanks so much for writing and sharing your story. Yeah, another really interesting question. It makes me think it would be really cool to do like a prenups 101 episode because I definitely don't know enough. We have definitely not done that, Chelsea. In six years, we have not done prenups 101, so we will put it on the list and get it going, and we can even have my divorce attorney on if you'd like. She's very funny, which is a very admirable quality in a divorce attorney. Yeah, I'll put it down on our list. Okay. Thank you, Chelsea. Thanks, Jean. In today's Thrive, let's talk about how to end your car lease early. The market for cars right now, it's unique. Used cars are in demand, which means they also cost more to buy and they can be hard to find. Leasing is in a similarly unique position. Some vehicles are keeping their equity, meaning now might be a good time to end your lease early. At hermoney.com, we've got a rundown on exactly how to do that, how to end a lease early. One option is to do what's called directly canceling. But there may be termination fees associated with this, so make sure you understand what the penalties may be before you move forward. Next, you could transfer your lease to somebody else if your contract allows for it, or you could opt for a trade-in if your dealership is open to trading your current car for another vehicle. There's also what's called a lease buyout, which means you'd buy your vehicle for the price set by your leasing company. You might come out ahead here assuming you find a buyer that will pay you more than the buyout price when you sell your car. Just bear in mind that in many states, you'll have to pay sales tax on the purchase amount if you do this. So the big question is, is it a good idea to end your lease early? If you have a buyer willing to pay more for it than your current lease payoff price, then generally it is. But if you're ending your lease via a direct cancellation, make sure you don't have significant damage to the car and that you haven't exceeded the mileage limit in the lease. Both of these things can drive up fees if you're ending the agreement. And Once you've decided that you are going to end your lease early, evaluate any wear and tear and mileage on the car. Take pictures, check the tires. This can help prevent any surprise fees that can be tacked on if you're returning your car to a dealership. Also, take a moment to determine what your car's value is. You can look that up on Kelly Blue Book or Carfax. Look, leasing can be a great option for a good number of people, especially if you negotiate a good lease deal and you like getting a new car every three to four years. But if you're looking at a car and you suspect that you might want to end your lease early, it's best to opt for the shortest lease possible or just buy. And remember, if you sell your car and you immediately need another vehicle, make sure you have other transportation lined up before someone drives your old car off into the sunset. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Connie and Pam for their delicious insight on their incredible cookies and their story. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We like hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.